every community or institution or family has a culture. Uh, this isn't just something that, like, think even more than like a national culture or an ethnic culture or something. This is kind of like what businesses talk about, like what's the culture of your workspace or what's the culture of your church. And uh, one of the ways that you can tell what a culture is of a community is looking at what they celebrate. So, for instance, you want to know what the culture is, what are the deep values of a place? You ask, well, what kind of parties does this community throw? So, for instance, my brother is a pastor in downtown New Orleans, and as a little experiment in culture, I want to compare the parties that New Orleans throws and the parties that Madison, Wisconsin throws, okay? Uh, Besides Mardi Gras, which, like, all of New Orleans revolves around, here's just three that I find to be fascinating, which are very revealing about New Orleans as a culture. The first one is called the Red Dress Run. This is massive. People of all shapes and sizes, men, women, boys, children, everybody, everybody wears, like thousands of people wear a red dress, and they start in restaurants and bars, and then they run throughout the city and end up in different restaurants and bars. This is a huge deal in New Orleans, okay? Another one is called White Linen Night, where everybody wears white linen, drinks champagne, and walks through art galleries throughout the streets of New Orleans, okay? But then what I love is, two weeks later, there's dirty linen night, where you wear the same linens you wore on white linen night, except you drink dirty martinis and you walk through antique shops. I've never lived in a place where they have anything like that, okay? Even those three things, they reveal some common themes in New Orleans that you could track, okay? Madison, this is alliterative, but I think this is, in my experience of Madison, I feel like Madison celebrates produce, politics and the Packers, okay? Uh, What I mean by that, if you want to draw a crowd and celebrate something, anything that is from the earth draws a crowd. It's like fresh corn, cheese, farmer's market, anything that's like foodie, farmy, we love that. Like that draws a crowd in Madison, at least it does for me, right? That's not crazy. Politics, man. Bascom Hill to the Capitol, if you want to draw a crowd, protest something. Activism, we love that. We're there. Like, our culture is big on that. And then the Packers, of course. My, uh, one of my greatest faux pas from the first time I moved to Wisconsin, I was at Hy-Vee and I was checking out and this woman said to me, are you watching the game today? And to my great shame, I said, what game? And she, it was on a Sunday and she looked at me like, she, it didn't even compute. Like, and then I realized like, oh, oh no. Now, think about those different parties, right? that reveals what's in the culture. And the parties that you throw and the things you celebrate also teaches culture. So you grow up seeing what's celebrated and that shapes your priorities, it shapes your values. So what we celebrate reveals our culture, it forms our culture. Luke 15, everything you just heard Michael read is fascinating because it's a massive debate about what God celebrates. It's a religious argument between religious people and Jesus about what should be celebrated and what is the priority in the kingdom of God. It's fascinating. Jesus, in verse 1, so everybody flip with me. We're going to work through this entire chapter. We're just going to focus on Luke 15, page 9. In verse 1, Jesus is hanging out, and unsavory people start flocking to him. Sinners, tax collectors, bad dudes, okay? People you don't want to be seen with. And Jesus welcomes them. And then all these religious people get mad about it. And they take to their Twitter feeds and they blow up the internet and like say all kinds of awful things about Jesus in whatever ancient form Twitter would have taken. And in response to their grumbling, 
This is important for the context of this whole chapter. In response to their blowing up the internet, Jesus tells three stories that all communicate one central idea. And it's about what kind of parties heaven throws. Um, If you're here and you're new to Christianity or faith or the Bible, uh, this is a really awesome place to see kind of Jesus' character and his values shine through because it's this internal religious conversation and it's really, really revealing of the heart of God and the heart of Jesus. I love it. Okay, story one. Look at it with me. Parable of the lost sheep. Um, in verses three to seven, Jesus essentially says, there's a guy who has 100 sheep. He's a shepherd. He loses one. And when he does, he leaves the 99 and he goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he finds it, he rejoices and he goes nuts. And then he comes home, invites all his buddies together, and he throws a massive, it's been found, homecoming party. Ain't no party like a homecoming party, because a homecoming party don't stop. Amen? (laughs) Uh, Look at verse 7. Jesus helpfully explains it for us. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is an astonishing thing to say. Uh, There's this bit in the book of Job, if you've ever gotten there in the Bible, where God speaks out of the whirlwind to Job, and he says this, I love it. Where were you when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Um, I picture God, it's talking about creation, speaking creation into existence. Marissa and I were recently watching a NASA documentary on discovery. It's amazing. Every time I see the Hubble pictures, it blows my mind. But if you imagine God speaking all that into existence and God saying, where were you when all the throng of heaven shouted and erupted in joy? It's like the universe came into existence and there's this deep roar. Champagne bottles are uncorked. Confetti guns just explode. I was in Chicago when the Cubs won the World Series and those pictures of just, just absolute celebration in the streets. Jesus is saying, when one sinner repents, there's an eruption, an explosion of joy in heaven. Champagne's uncorked. Confetti guns go off. People start shooting those t-shirt guns everywhere. There's a party. But notice he adds that the celebration is greater for just one person, one lost person returning than over 99 people who aren't lost. So the heaven, heaven doesn't just throw parties. There's actually a value system. There's a priority in heaven, in its party throwing. Second story. Look at it with me. Parable of the lost coin. We've had lost sheep, now we have lost coin. Verses 8 to 10, it's almost identical. There's a woman who has 10 coins. She loses one, and Jesus says she quits everything she's doing. She snaps, and her whole world gets super focused on finding this one coin. And then she finds it, and like the shepherd, she gathers all her friends together and throws a massive party. Uh, I found my coin party. And Jesus, again, make sure you don't miss his point. Look at verse 10. Just so, I tell you, there is joy, joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So before we move on, here's the big idea that I think Jesus is very clearly communicating. I was just reading this in my everyday reading about a year ago, and it just blew my mind. I never noticed this. But he's saying the culture of the kingdom of God celebrates the lost being found. 
God gets excited about and literally throws parties for when people come home, when lost things are found. It's pretty awesome. Now, what makes the story fascinating and what makes his point fascinating is the context. So remember, this began with him. He's hanging out with sinners, uh, which, as you can see, is flowing out of his priority of celebrating the lost being found. So he loves hanging out with the lost, right? But remember, the other religious people grumbled about it. They disagreed. And I've studied this. I've realized how kind of piercing these stories are, how intentional Jesus is making these like a zinger. So think about Jesus's lost sheep story. Imagine you're a shepherd. You've got 100 sheep. You're like, yeah, I got 100 sheep. Okay, I get that. You lose one. It's like, yeah, I've lost one before. What do you do? You leave the 99 and go after the one. I, I am not sure that that would have made complete sense to the people listening to the story. I don't think it makes tons of sense. I think people would have been like, huh? I don't think in business or in shepherding, that value system is, is a common thought. Um, so I think most people would have said, no, you cut your losses for the one. You rejoice over the 99. Like, Jesus, you need, you need a basic lesson in economics. Let me, like, explain to you how this works. To go back to the business world, uh, business people talk about with companies culture clash when there's a merge between two companies. So I used to work in sales, and one of the companies I worked with was they literally made office supplies, uh, which isn't a very exciting thing to make. And it was like a classic 90s office, like the eagle with like inspirational quote on the bottom, you know, like water cooler, everybody's in a black suit, standard. I worked for, I sold to another tech company that literally had a skateboard half pipe in their office. There were no desks, it was all turf. They offered me a beer at like 10.30 in the morning when I was there for a sales pitch. Uh, now imagine if one of those companies bought out the other. You would have a massive culture clash you would have a lot of guys saying things like, hey, man, you don't need to wear a suit here. Or like, hey, buddy, we don't drink beer at 1030 in this office, you know. One of those cultures would, would win. And I think what Jesus is saying is having a massive culture clash with the religious people. The Pharisees and scribes get excited about completely different things. They throw different parties, which is why they're grumbling. And this, this tension leads to the third story which is the master story of the master storyteller, Jesus. Um, we know this story sometimes as the prodigal son, but if you read it in context, we should probably call it the lost son, right? There's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, and then there's a lost son. And here's why this is so awesome. Before, the 99 sheep and the nine coins who didn't get lost have no way of articulating their feelings. Um, but in this one, there's an older brother. So there's a, a guy who has multiple somethings, it's sons, and we get to hear from both how they engage with God's choices. Sound good? Let's think about it. In verses 11 to 24, I'm just going to summarize this. The father loses one of his sons, and this son gets lost far from home. He takes his dad's credit cards. He peels to the, to the red light district. He maxes everything out. He makes a lot of really, really bad choices. But then he turns, he repents, and he comes home. And we learn in verse 20 that the father, like the shepherd and the woman with coins, had been diligently searching for him, right? He was looking. He was torn up about it. And so when the father sees him, he runs to him and has compassion on him from a long way off, it says. And then what happens? 
At this point, you could have finished the story if you were hearing these from the first time from Jesus, right? He comes home, he finds it, and what does the father do? He rejoices and he throws a massive, massive party. He throws an it's been found, homecoming, ain't no party like a homecoming party because a homecoming party don't stop party. Um, look how it ends in verse 24. And they begin to celebrate. At this point, the story is exactly like the others. But Jesus goes on, and this is where it gets really interesting. You see, in this story, this is where the brother, who's like the 99 sheep who didn't get lost, get to express their opinion about the fact that the father is rejoicing over this. So read with me in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. I love this. The older brother has been doing his chores really faithfully, maybe even some of the chores that his younger brother, you know, decided not to do when he left the house and maxed out his dad's credit cards. So he's like sweating, he's dirty, he's sore, and he's coming in and he hears, literally hears, it says this in the Bible, music and dancing. Uh, in my imagination, I always picture September by Earth, Wind, and Fire playing. He can hear like, you know, and he has no idea what's going on. So he grabs a servant and says, what's going on? And the servant says, oh, your brother came home and there's a massive party for him. Like he's just being celebrated. There's pizza, there's music, everything. And at that, he gets furious and he doesn't go in. Culture clash starts to boil up here. And this is where Jesus' story is starting to really get a sharp edge. The older, older brother had been living to different cultural standards and priorities. He gets excited about different things. And therefore, he viscerally disagrees with this homecoming party. He doesn't like it. And the father comes out to him. I love this. The father goes out to him just like he did to the younger brother, which is amazing. And this son gives his case in verses 28 to 30. So he gets to talk. Here's how I think I would summarize what the son says. I think he says something like, look, father, this makes absolutely no sense that you're celebrating this son of yours. Makes no sense you've, you've spent time buying pizza, worrying about him, caring for him, going out to find him. He stole your credit cards. He went to the red light district and you are celebrating him coming home, and you have not once thrown me or my friends a pizza party who have done all the chores every day, and we've been super faithful. I think we need to actually respect that critique because it makes some emotional sense. You guys feel me on that? I feel like uh, I don't think it's too easy to just push this guy's thoughts away. I get where he's coming from, but then listen to the father's response because this is where it gets so shocking and beautiful. Look at his response in verse 31. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, if I could translate this to us, the father's response to Christchurch Madison and all of us here in 2018, here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying, son, I love you. I always have. I love the fact that you've been faithful. But put this in perspective. This is me translating it to us. You live as a part of a warm, vibrant, 
church community. You know what it's like to have the legitimate light and fruit of God's word being spoken into your life daily and regularly. You have people who love and know you. You have a place at God's table where you come every week and know you're forgiven and you have hope and you're nourished. You live with the power and the the guiding light of the Holy Spirit in your life. You have this all the time, every day. It's always been there. All that I have is yours. But this son had none of that. Zero. This son, a precious, precious soul, lived in darkness alone. He had no hope, no transcendent joy, knew none of the things that you know or received none of the things that you were receiving. Therefore, and I love the Father says this, it was fitting. Remember how Jesus says in Luke 24, it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and rise again? Here it is again. It's almost like God is saying, therefore, it was necessary to celebrate. I wasn't just moved by my emotions and went crazy. It was the right choice. It was the right emphasis and the right priority, which flowed out of my heart and my divine convictions. Notice that every single story in Luke 15 is, a, is an arc that comes back home. So something is lost, something is found, party. Something is lost, something is found, party. Something is lost, something is found, party, except for the older brothers. His hangs, he doesn't finish it. And you would have been expecting him to. The older brother never wandered off, but he was so concerned about himself, his self-focus, he had his own values so much that he was unable to enter in. He could not get in and dance to September because of his own self-absorption and focus. Is there anything more tragic than not being able to enter into a party or a dance because, you, because of whatever? It's an awful place to be in. So I think Jesus is ending this story this way because he wants to put a question mark on the end of this. I think rhetorically this is really on purpose. So first to the Pharisees and the people who are listening to him, he's like, what's your party culture? Can you, do you celebrate the loss being found? Because that's what God gets excited about. I also think it's to us as well. I think he's putting a question mark on the end of it, saying, what is your party culture? Because the, the kingdom party culture is rocking. Will you enter into it? And then he ends it. So I want to finish with three, three quick points just of application from this. The first is this. I've already said this, but I hope that's really clear by now. Kingdom culture celebrates homecomings. Not making this up. That's literally what Jesus is saying. God gets excited about people coming home. You could say God gets excited when a community or people come home to Jesus and his church. Our vision is not our vision. It's God's vision. Amen? Amen. It's not just something we made up. It's his culture. It's not just our culture. And we, like a company, have been merged into the kingdom of God. He bought us with his blood. Literally, it says that Jesus purchased for himself a people. And so we come under and we're transformed by that culture. And we're meant to take on the same thing. To where our biggest thing that we get excited about is homecoming when something lost is found. 
And I feel like uh, because God gets so excited about this, with us being a little church that has this as our vision, I feel like God and all the people of heaven, all the angels, uh, God and his sovereignty is kind of waiting and watching us be planted like you're watching the Cubs in the ninth inning or something like, oh man, this is gonna be good. Like get, get the champagne ready. Where's the confetti guns? This is gonna be amazing. The second thing I wanna say though is that you can really clearly see here that even though that, that is what God celebrates and that's what we're meant to celebrate, we will be tempted to celebrate other things. That's a big human temptation. Um, there's no better party than a party when something lost comes home, when someone who is alone comes into a family. I don't know if you guys have ever seen, seen that happen or been for it. There's nothing better than it. But clearly, from the, from the older brother, from the, the Pharisees and the scribes who are debating with Jesus, there's a temptation to end up celebrating other things. And we're starting as a church, and we, we have been really clear that this is our vision, to be a community coming home to Jesus and his church, but we will be tempted to kind of veer and celebrate other stuff. And so we have these words for us, kind of like a guiding light to try to hem us in. Um, we could celebrate having the perfect experience for the, the 99 of us who are here or aren't lost, but it wouldn't be as good of a party, a thing to celebrate as finding a lost person, seeing more and more people come home to Jesus and his church. So it's almost like a, a warning to us. Uh, and that's why I think Jesus' words are so wonderful as kind of a, a guiding light being hemmed in by what he's saying here. Uh, and the third thing I want to say is when this culture, when this party culture sinks in, I think it manifests itself in two different ways. That is holy unsettledness and holy parties. So this is what I think if you are transformed by what Jesus is saying in the heart of God, it comes out, it'll start to look like holy unsettledness and holy parties. First with holy unsettledness, when the woman loses her coin, she drops everything she's doing. She was late to work, right? Like she stopped responding on her text messages and people were like, what are you up to? She just quit. She was so torn up about this one coin that she had to find it. And I think that's really, really significant. Um, I think the only ways that we experience this in our culture is phones. It's like you can lose some things, but I noticed today that if you lose your smartphone, you freak out. You know, it's like, I can't do anything if I don't have my smartphone, you know. The only other one I would say is a pacifier. If you have small children, that's a huge deal. We were just on a flight this Thanksgiving, and Aaron chucked the only passy we had behind a seat on the airplane, and we stopped everything we were doing. Uh, it was bad. But there's that kind of holy unsettledness. It's like, wait a second. There are people who have a seat, and they don't know they have a seat. There are people who don't get to live inside the warmth of this house. We got to go tell them. We got to find them and make sure that they know. And then when holy unsettledness manifests itself in your heart and in the heart of our church, I think and we pray that we will see holy parties. We pray that we will have lots of champagne-soaked, champagne confetti-covered, just joy-filled, raucous homecoming parties. We want to, do, to, to join in the dance of God. We want to see this happen. Amen? So we're a community coming home to Jesus and his church. God gets excited about that. That's what I want you to walk away with. He throws literal parties when it happens. And we want to be a part of that joy and that dance. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.